Welcome to the Galway Film Centre's podcast, Crew Call. In this limited series of in-depth interviews, each episode will feature a new guest as we chat with successful creators working in lesser explored areas in film and TV. Each episode sharing unique insight into the career options outside of the more familiar roles in the industry as we hear how each guest got into their particular field and their career paths today. The Crew Call podcast is produced by the Galway Film Centre and supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and RAP, the Western Region Audiovisual Producers Fund. Hello and welcome to Crew Call. I'm your host, Linda Vranach, and on this episode, we have Barry Conroy. Barry is a gaffer. He has worked on productions such as Frank, The Lobster, Free Fire, Dublin Murders, Finding Joy, and Foundation, to name a few. Welcome, Barry. So you're a gaffer. So maybe for someone who doesn't know what a gaffer does, would you mind explaining your job to us? It's generally producers and DPs bring us on. We're brought on to run the lighting department and take care of all the things that come with that, from the power on the sets to lighting setups, pre-lighting, getting everything organised. It's fairly heavy going, uh, but it's fun. Can you tell me, Barry, how this started for you? How did you get into this industry? My dad was a gaffer. He started out in the late 60s. He ended up, his brother was an electrician, and he got a job in in Ardmore Studios back in the day. And he brought dad onto a couple of jobs. My dad working for a company, Mole Richardson's. Um, and they used to provide crew two jobs. The jobs would come in that hired the equipment, hired the labour, and the lads would go on it. And then, I don't know when it happened, but Jack became a cameraman and a DP. Dad then was his gaffer. So um, sort of when I, I started growing up, dad was working all the time. He was away on jobs. And then through the 80s, when it got really quiet, he was home and we thought, this is brilliant. Um, and then he started getting work abroad. So sort of as a teenager your dad was away a lot um, he wanted me to leave school become an electrician I wasn't into it so I went off and done my own thing for a few years but I ended up on a set with dad he was doing a job in Belfast and I ended up for two weeks just going up and helping out and thought yeah this is something that's pretty cool I'll do this so I sort of started give us a proper job let me work on the floor and he said no you go you become an electrician and then you always have something to fall back on so I got a job with City Electric in Ardmore. Uh, the late Patty O'Toole gave me a job there, and I was there for four and a half years, served me time, came out of it, um, and it was brilliant because I learned the lamps, I learned the gear. Um, so by the time I got to the floor, I knew which lamps were which, how they worked. I was able to take them apart, put them back together. I didn't know the ins and outs of working the floor, but having the knowledge of the gear helped. So that was a great basis for me. I never had an intention of wiring a house. I'm not made for crawling around in attic spaces and wiring showers and fuse boards. I'm just, it's not me. So dad happened to be away. He was working in Thailand at the time. So I went looking for work and James McGuire, who's uh, possibly one of the best gaffers around, um, he gave me jobs on the floor. I used to come out and do days with him and stuff. And then he crewed me. Um, and I loved, the, loved being on the floor, loved the work. Everything about it was great. The crews are great. So I stuck at it and kept going. Then Terry Mulligan was doing the tutors at the time. And the tutors was the sort of job, if you got on tutors, you were delighted because you knew you were getting six, seven months work every year. I pestered him and annoyed him and Kevin Scott. 
and just kept annoying him. And one day I met him in the studios and was like, we have a job, do you want to do it? So jumped onto tutors and out of that, a uh, couple of years doing that and commercials um, and smaller jobs, small TV jobs. Um, I was lucky enough that uh, James McGuire seen something in me and thought he might be okay. And James got Harry Potter in the UK, uh, the fifth one. So he asked me to go over on the crew um, and that was phenomenal. Never seen that. And, and to this day, you don't see jobs like that. They're just massive machines. Um, so that was sort of the basis of it. And I realized I'm going to stick at this and, and do everything I can to get to the best boy and start having a bit of control over gear and figuring the logistics out. So it was sort of a natural progression. I came home, James ended up giving me a job as a floor best boy. Um, and then when I came home, I thought I'm going to push more and more, more best boy jobs. And um, kept, I was with James for about three, three years and there was a quiet time. And then Camelot came in and Terry Mulligan was the gaffer on that. Um, when they opened up a second unit, Terry likes to try and keep his crew doing and give everybody an opportunity. So when second unit came up, he offered it to me. When I do that, I panicked. I thought, this isn't going to be great. But I'd done it and I was lucky. I got Dad on as best boy and Darren Tiernan, who was the DP on it, was brilliant with me and taught me everything he knew. And I had the backup of Terry and the backup of Kevin Scott. And that's basically, it sort of happened that I fell into it. And I came out of it going, I might actually be able to do this. And a few people were saying it to me, going, what, what's next? What, what are you on to next? Can you crew me? And I thought, well, let's stick at it. So I stopped going for the jobs on the floor and started applying for jobs. Um, and then the first one I got on my own was with um, Ashley Mulch, the director. Um, Martin Fuhrer was a DP. And I knew through the commercials, I knew the... Um, line producer so I'd contacted and said look can I stick my CV in met him got the job and came away going holy moly how did I get this one and it was brilliant it was a six seven week shoot it was all over Dublin and um, got a crew together and done it and I haven't looked back since Martin Martin was brilliant he's a really talented DP and he ended up doing three jobs nearly back to back so all of a sudden I was the only one working in Ireland doing jobs and people were ringing me looking for work and I thought oh Right. So I managed to get a good crew around me then. And we've just kept going. And it, it's been nonstop the last few years now. It's been brilliant. Since that point, when you just started, I guess, gathering momentum then with your own crew, um, are there some projects that stand out to you now as you reflect? Yeah. The, the, like I've done a few with Martin Fuhrer. I've done um, a job, Frank, with um, James Mather was DP on it and I'd done that and it got a bit quiet and I started looking to the north and the UK trying to find work and I knew a girl who I, she'd been um, in production when I'd done the job with dad a couple of weeks so I contacted her and said look if there's something coming up and she happened to be a coordinator on a job and she put me in for it so I went and met the DP who was Laurie Rose uh, who's very heavily involved with the BSC now and Ben Wheatley was the director. And it was a feature film, uh, Tom Hiddleston. It was uh, brilliant. It was massive scale at that point for me. And I'd sort of finally got a solid crew, Best Boy, Jenny Up, Floor Sparks, and we built it and it was working. So when we went and done it, uh, we got some local bodies in and Laurie ended up doing another job with Ben in Brighton. We went to Brighton the following year 
and I ended up doing four features with Larry uh, in the UK and in the North. My big problem at the time was I was going for these sort of jobs and I was up against guys who were well established, Terry Mulligan, James McGuire, Noel Cullen and Gareth Baldwin. And I was always fourth, fifth, sixth in line for them. So I kept missing jobs and I thought, if I can get something in the UK, and I got a good run in the UK, and when I came back, I suddenly had a CV that had a mix of TV, a mix of features, and I started getting offered bigger jobs in Ireland, bigger TV jobs, and then Penny Dreadful landed, and I got second unit on it, um, and I'd done that for a couple of years, and then onto Badlands, and they were just, they were massive scale, but I learned then that, you know, instead of ordering 10 lamps, you're ordering 100 lamps, you're ordering lots of cable, and you're allowing jennies, you've got three, four jennies coming on, and 20 men. So by watching the other guys doing it, I picked it up, and then the crew were picking up all this sort of stuff, and Paul, my best boy, who's been with me for years now, he's in the background going, how many lamps do we need? Oh, we need 10 of them. And he'd go, right, I'm adding 20%, because we're going to need another 20%. Um, so he's always sitting on your shoulder, always go more, more, get more, get more. And you need it, you know, as the jobs have been going and going, you needed it. So the jobs with Larry were brilliant. I loved high rise. It was great fun. And then we, when we went to Brighton, uh, we lived in a lovely little apartment um, in the middle of the lanes in Brighton. Um, and we shot in a warehouse for six weeks um, and we had to wire the whole warehouse. Everything was built into the warehouse. So no matter what way we looked, we could turn around shoot that way we had 360 and it was handheld lamps and it was 3000 bullet hits and Brie Larson just after she'd done um, Room and she was getting her Oscar in the middle of it so it was working with big time actors and, and coming home then with that sort of bit of experience and seeing the way it was being done in England on, on the bigger scale of things and you were coming home and I had the confidence then to go for jobs so when you're on the recce bus and they're talking to you about stuff, you've got knowledge and you've got experience and stuff. So it, it helps instead of sitting trying to figure stuff out and going home and checking on the internet. How do you do this? And how do you do that? You've made the mistakes in, in another country and you come home with the solutions. To themselves. And did you recognize a sort of a confidence in yourself after that? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the confidence grows. And I think with every job and still to this day, like I'm doing a thing now, foundation season two, we've done season one and when I landed that the phone didn't stop ringing from people going oh you're doing the one in Limerick right you know and that was 40 electricians down there and there was light and crew and um, gear coming truckloads like eight container loads of gear coming in from the UK and it was the confidence of walking onto a set and being surrounded by producers that have done massive shows all around the world and they're standing there looking at you going, how are you going to do this? And how do you do it, Barry? What is your process when you're approaching? Getting the scripts is a big part. And I tend to read through the scripts and try, I imagine it myself then, how do I think it would be lit? How do I think it would work? Um, and then when you meet the DPs and you have your conversations with them and you go out in the first location and they start telling you how you do it and you start altering what you had in your head and adjusting it and you come up with, right, so this is how they want it to look. So then you build it from there. Like I'll never forget when I read the script of The Green Knight and it starts with Dev Patel waking up and, you know, sun spilling through and the princess is there and it's a Disney movie and I have the normal flary Disney princess thing going on in my head and I'm thinking this is going to be beautiful, it'll be Disney, it'll be great. And then I met the DP and he was like, yeah, we're going really dark and really grungy and we're going to wake up and it's not a princess castle. 
it's now a re and you're oh right okay so it's a completely different set of lamps we're not going with hmis we're going with tungsten we're going with making it that bit grittier so then you start building it and you're sitting looking at the thing you, you, you get your storyboards and you go through all them with them and you start imagining it and then you just build your package from it and once you get into your if especially if it's a new dp once you get into your pre-lights and your testing and that and you start to this is this, the diffusion they like to use because every dp will someone like grid cloth someone like what white diffusion 216 someone like silks some don't like any diffusion they want hard light so you sort of build your package out of that. And I find once you've built up a, um, a relationship with them and you start getting on with them, and Dad said it to me years ago, he said, whenever you do your interview, they see your CV and say, right, he's well able to do the job. Can we sit at the monitors and have a conversation, but not just work, can we talk about what's going on outside work? Can we get on with each other? And I think it's important that you can have a conversation with the DPs and get on with them and enjoy the job because it's, it's a hard enough job. You're away from families. Um, you're away from friends, you know, I'm away now, I've been away since the start of January, kids at home, I have a wife at home, and you need that understanding, but you have to be enjoying it, because otherwise there's no point in doing it, you know, it's you're making money, but you need to enjoy what we're doing, you're away from everyone for so long, you know, even when you're shooting at home, you're getting home late, you're seeing them at the weekends, you're tired, and you, you have to have a bit of support there. And you were talking about the different looks that a director or a project might require. Over the years, does that mean that you have built up a sort of repertoire in terms of... Yeah, you sort of get a library. And I, I've been kind of lucky because, you know, Ben Wheatley done his jams are sort of dystopian. They're a little bit out there. So you, you do things in those films that and, and things then like The Green Knight, which is more tungsten. Then you go on to a foundation, which is all LED you learn every job you go on to, you just hope that you can get people behind you that can figure stuff out. And like the LEDs, we had kilometers of LEDs, which we would never use on a period piece or, you know, any dystopian sort of stuff. You wouldn't be using them. So it's having people that have the knowledge of all that, building that up. But yeah, you build up, uh, like when people look and they see Stan and Ollie, Stan and Ollie was one of the most beautiful films I've been on just because of the look of it and the way it was shot. It was almost shot as if it was on film. It was made as if it was done in, you know, the early days of film. Um, it was a little bit gritty to light that and set it up. It's different to everything else that you would do. I love, if I can, to go from a TV show to do a movie because there are always different genres and they always work slightly differently. And the schedules are different because when you're doing TV, you get into a rhythm and one week it's a block, it's a block, it's a block. Whereas in a feature, you're following the storyline all the way through and, mm -hmm. and it can be a much nicer way of shooting things. And do you think, Barry... Do you see what you do as a skillful? It's a skillful thing, but do you see that it's an art form as well? Or there's a lot of skill involved in it, and with rigging and everything else that you have to do, it has to be done right and safe and everything else. But there is an art to it, and I think you sort of build up an eye that you're sitting at the monitors, and if if you're paying attention, I've always said anyone that's sitting at monitors or on set on the phone, they miss out on so much of what's happening around them. They miss why a bit of poly's gone in just to lift the eyes. And you often see, you'll say, would you put a bit of poly in the eye? And they go in and they might have it too high. I always find if you're putting poly in on a, on a lady, you keep it up above, at eye level. You don't want it down low, casting shadows coming up. You don't want it up too high. It's giving no shadows down over the top lip. You want it at eye level. Whereas with fellas, you can go slightly lower. And, and lift their face because the shadows don't 
you know, you want you want the, the, the ladies to look really well on camera with the fellas, you throw a bit of honey on the ground and you, you know, you can help them that way. But you want that little glint in, in an eye. Um, and especially when you're doing the darker films where there's a lot of contrast in it, you know, and if you end up with a dead eye, you want to have a little pinpoint in it. And it just may just be a little bit of poly or a highlight in the background or an highlight in the camera just to pick the eyes out. I mean, it must be very challenging to ensure that the look of a film is cohesive, like from start to finish, that it's all this, you know, it's it's bringing forth that same theme or era or whatever it is you're going for. Yeah, and, and it's, it, it's a lot to do with the lights that you use. And if you tend to use the same lights in every setup, you, you know, you use bigger or smaller version of it. And you light it in the, you know, you put the light in the same position and you build that balance through the whole thing that it always looks the same. But it's what I love is when the storyline pushes you towards lights. So Stan and Ollie was quite an up and down movie with um, the feel of it. Like there was really happy moments, there were sad moments, there was rainy moments. And you could cool the lights down a lot for those sadder moments and just use them to tell the story a little bit. So in the happier moments, you were warmer. The camera is a little bit warmer. They'll change the color temperature on it. But you use warmer lights. And then when you want to make it that bit grayer and a bit moodier, you, you use the cooler lights. You just And with the, with the advent of LEDs, you can change the color now on the dimmer desk or you can do it on the head and just take it, make it a little bit cooler and just show the emotion that's happening in the scenes with the lights as well. And people don't notice it, I don't think, when they're watching it. But when you watch it overall, you see warmer bits going cooler as, as the mood changes. Um, and I love when you read a script and, and there's a description in there, you know, it's got a bit sadder moments and, and you sort of go, right, well, let's change our lighting a little bit for those moments. And then when you're sitting talking to the DP, they might end up using a, a, less, a lighter diffusion. So the lights are a little bit harder in their moments as well. So you get harder shadows on the faces. Uh, the background can be dropped off a little bit. Um, so you're, you're in with the, the, the actor more than what's happening around them. And you know that you're in that moment with them. Tell me, how much do you feel happens actually on set on the day and how much happens in the prep? Or generally, do you feel like when you actually get to roll the cameras that things are working out as you had planned? Uh, most of the times, hopefully, it works out as we planned. So when we find a set, we generally go in and we have a walk around and we do our broad brush strokes. So you look at the set and you go, do you know, we'll have angles looking this way, that way. We'll be looking up, so we need our lights higher at the ceiling. And you try and fill the space with your lights, especially on sets. You, you fill the space with the lights. And then when you go in on it, you're covered for every angle that you're doing. You may bring in a light onto the floor that you need to use just to fill it in. You may put little pinpoints behind pillars to pick spots out. But in general, you hope that all your prep is done and the brush strokes are there. So you're only going in and finessing it on the day. Now, it's different when you go into a building um, that's already there. You walk into them, the ceilings are lower you don't get the opportunity to rig lights overhead. So you have to look at that space and go, right, well, where would the light naturally come from? You find your windows. Is there white walls in it? Is there going to be a bit of bounce off the walls? So you, you start at that point. When we get here, we're going to have 18s outside the window or 6Ks, depending on the size of the room. And you build it from there. It's incredible how you can pick out all the different things that are happening with the light. It's funny. I was on a plane recently with one of the DPs and we were sitting in the thing. And as the plane started to bank, the two of us had our phone out and we were both recording. And I didn't notice he was recording. He didn't notice I was until we put our phones down. And he was sitting um, on the aisle opposite. And I was going, oh, I said, for when we're doing that scene, see the way the light moves around the plane. Turn his phone to me, goes, I'm just after doing the UX same thing. I tend to go into buildings and 
my wife gets really annoyed because I walk in and I look up and I see the lights and go, these lights are horrible. I wouldn't have done it this way. Or you're sitting in somewhere and you're, you just, you're constantly seeing the way light works on people. Um, and you're sort of logging in your brain. I'm a phone full of pictures from hotel rooms where you wake up in a hotel room and you take a picture of the wall because the light's coming in a certain way. It's a beautiful color. And you try and remember that color for a sunrise or uh, moonlight coming in windows. I always love moonlight. And you're like, when you wake up in a dark room, there's moonlight spilling through. You go, oh, look at that. That's pretty. And it ends up on an iPad somewhere at home. And you say, why is there a picture of a window, Dad? You go, well, it's there. I know it's there. And I'll find it at some point when I need it. Is it difficult to replicate that then? Yeah, it's always, you're always trying to match um, with colour temperature in the lamps now. You know, 10 years ago when we didn't have the LEDs that we do, you were having to match it with gels. And you were bringing magentas and greens into it. So you, you tended to have to try and take that out of lamps to try and find a colour that works. Um, sodium colours were always difficult to find. But now it's all at this flick of a button. It's in the lamp and, and you can go. But with the LEDs, they haven't quite advanced enough that you can get hard shafts of light. So it's harder to get that sun streak coming in. So you tend to go back to your 20Ks and your 10Ks coming through windows to get those and then shape it and give your angles. But it's just, it's always been careful of skin tone. You know, you can light the background, but it's what's hitting the skin and how it's coming off different skin tones um, is what we tend to be worried about nowadays, especially with LEDs. If you don't get really clean you know, LEDs, you can get too much green and skin that shows up and, and it's harder to take out a skin tone than the old-fashioned lamps coming in is the best thing for skin. But uh, the LEDs now, you're trying to shape it and use different fabrics to give it a little bit of warmth in there to take the edge off it because they can be quite harsh and then with the natural light let's say that might be spilling in onto a set as well can that mess things up for you on the day if it's very different you can always work with natural light but it's finding it to be steady and especially in ireland when you're filming in ireland you, we all know we get four seasons in one day and you have light coming through a window you cloud, cloud coming over like all through the early jobs because you wouldn't have had as many lights and you wouldn't have big frames you wouldn't have the crew to stand with big frames you couldn't control it as much so you'd be standing, you'd have a guy out with his pan glass watching the clouds, waiting for a gap in it to make sure that it's consistent through the whole scene. Otherwise, we're, we're looking at you. There's a sunlight beaming in and we turn around for the reverse over your shoulder. There's no sun hitting you. It's a cloudy room. And then you're trying to replicate it. It's very hard in the smaller jobs because you don't have the resources to do that. Um, it's a lot easier on, on the bigger job and you just light it yourself and it stays consistent all throughout the day. What do you like about this work, Barry? The mix of people. I, th I find that you walk on a set and there's people from all over the world working together. Every job you go on to, you're meeting new people. Uh, you're getting on with new people. You hang out with them for two or three months and then you mightn't see them for 10 years or you may never see them again. But you're building relationships with people all over the place. But it's also, and I remember um, my wife wanting to go to Dublin Castle and wanting to go to the National History Museum and go to these places. And you arrive up and you're paying in. And, and it's then you realise, oh, we're only allowed in this little room. I was up there and I was up there. And like you get into the National History Museum to film and you can go up to the top floor because they get special safety passes. The top two floors of the Natural History Museum are closed off to the public. No one gets up there to see what's up there. But we've managed to get in. We've flown balloons in them, helium-filled balloons to light the space. Um, and you're getting to be places that everyone else either pays to go or doesn't get near in the, in the first place. So you get to see some really cool things as well. And travel. I never thought I'd be traveling. I always thought 
I'll do what dad did, but I'm not going to travel. I'm going to stay at home. But then the opportunities are presented to you. You sort of have to go, well, it's kind of cool. All last year through the pandemic, we ended up in the Canaries, Berlin, Iceland. Unfortunately, my wife was sitting at home in the middle of a pandemic and lockdown. But you, you sort of have to appreciate the fact that, okay, the weekends, we're in for adventure. Everyone at home is in February in lashings of rain. And we get to do this stuff and enjoy what we're doing and hang out with people that are good people. I think in Ireland, we're really lucky with the crew that we have. The, you know, the crews in Ireland are second to none. I haven't met crews that work as well together or as, as friendly as the crews that we have. They just all seem to get on. For you and your father now, you ended up, I guess, following his footsteps? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Dad was doing the job in Belfast with Brendan Gleeson and I ended up having a point with him in a hotel and we were sitting chatting and he says, are you going to come into the industry the same as your dad? And I said, no, I don't want to come into an industry where dad is the number one. And I come into the industry and I'm Louis' son and I'll always be seen as Louis' son. And we were sitting having a chat and Brendan says, I'm going to give you a bit of advice. And it's the same advice I gave to Donald and Brian. He says, you'll start out in the industry and take the little bit of help that you get because you're your father's son. He said, but your aim one day is for someone to turn to you and say, is Louis Conroy your dad, not are you Louis Conroy's son? He always had said it to his sons, go and be an actor, be Brendan Gleeson's son, but someday aim that Brendan Gleeson's your dad and you're seen as your own person and, and that's your history behind you. So it was a lovely way of putting it. And I remember then uh, one of the jobs of Martin Fuhrer and we were sitting having a conversation in the dining bus one morning and he said, uh, is Louis your dad? And I thought, oh, here's the moment. And I said, yeah, he is. And he goes, he turned me down for a job many years ago and I wasn't too happy about it. I thought, oh, here we go. It's, it's brilliant because dad's 76 years of age, uh, but still loves going to work, still loves coming and sitting on set and hanging out with people and having the fun with them. So I still managed to get dad out on jobs. We had him down in Limerick last year on foundation. And I remember him walking onto the set going, unbelievable. He couldn't believe the scale of it, the length of the shoot how long we were on it. Like we started in 2019 on Foundation and because of the pandemic, we finished season one in 2021. You know, having that on set um, and it's not that we end up talking to each other throughout the day, but it's seeing him sitting and people having respect for what he's done throughout his career and talking to him and having fun with him and enjoying it. It's, it's brilliant. You know, it's great to have that. And mum was a unit nurse um, for years. And she had so many people that she had looked after and people who had had babies throughout the time, you know, and mum would have looked after them on set. And people have lovely memories of mum and, you know, they're constantly going, how's, how's Eileen doing? How's she getting on? And it's lovely, you know, the Irish film industry is full of families um, that have come through the industry. And we do need to bring people in that don't come, you know, there's enough talented people out there. You don't have to be a family member to get into the industry. And, you know, it's said across the world, open the doors, let people in and teach people. What would you advise somebody who did want to get into the industry? I think there's training schemes. I think um, the Irish industry as a whole, and I know Screen Guilds Ireland are doing an awful lot with regards to getting people into the industry and putting training schemes in there for people to come in. I, I think the UK done it way before we done it, where we thought we weren't big enough to have training schemes built. But we're getting to the place now where, and Screen Guilds Ireland are doing an amazing job of getting trainees onto jobs, getting trainees into the grips department, getting trainees into hair and makeup and ADs and runners and everything else. And it's great. It's brilliant. It's bringing new blood in, people that are passionate and interested in it. Let everyone come out and spend days on set. And if you don't enjoy it, and there is a lot of people that will come out and we go, we started at eight and we don't know when we're finishing. And what's this about 
it's an hour down in the middle of Wicklow and it's lashing rain and everything else. And people go, no, this isn't for me. But if they do love it, then keep pushing and keep annoying people nearly to say, can I have a job? Can I have a job? And work hard when you're there. And hopefully we get more and more new blood into the game and it builds the industry because the last year, year and a half, you know, the jobs that are coming into Ireland are getting bigger. The industry is getting busier around the world. And now that Pinewood have bought studio space in Ireland, they've bought lighting company in Ireland. We're basically, I think what's going to happen is we're going to become an overflow for all the jobs that are coming in from the UK. So there's going to be potential there to have massive amounts of people working and the industry can grow year on year, I think, for the next 10 years. And hopefully we build up a massive uh, number of people. Barry, I know you're a busy man, so I won't keep you too much longer. But I wanted to ask you, do you see your work as being creative? And if so, how? I think everyone that's in the industry has creative work, and that's every department. Everyone needs to respect each other's department. And, and sort of, you know, when costume comes on set, and I, and I find it happens an awful lot, the costume will come in and we'll go to put something on them. And you start going, oh, am I okay to open this? Am I okay to go in there and put this? And you nearly do it without turning to the costume person and saying, is there, can, would you mind giving us a hand? We need to build a battery pack into it. It used to be that I'm not allowed to touch a costume. You know, uh, we can't open a curtain. You can open them, but you just have to be respectful of the other departments and say, is it okay if we open this a little bit to help? You know, and continuity. People forget about the person that's sitting in the corner with a clipboard and an iPad and what they're trying to keep everything in, in line. So I think creatively, everyone's involved in it. And that goes right the way through from catering all the way up. Without good food, nobody's going to be able to work throughout the day. So it, everyone has to respect everyone. But from a lighting point of view, it's been able to design new things and come up with new ways of doing it. You know, 20 years ago, sets were lit in a singular sort of fashion. It was tungsten overhead. You had to gel them. Now you're figuring out there's so many options. How are we going to do it? And how are we going to make sure that it stays that way for the whole show? And we don't have to change it halfway through, you know, and use up a load of man hours and a load of labor that was unnecessary if you planned it right from the start. So I think it's, it's the planning of it. Um, and paying attention every day is the creativity that comes into it. I imagine it involves a lot of creativity. I mean, even when you mentioned going into a warehouse and having to figure out how do we wire this place within the time constraints that we have. and Absolutely, yeah. On that one, when we went into the warehouse, because um, it was supposed to be an abandoned warehouse, the roof lights were, uh, there was open roof lights, strips of um, clear perspex that were run across the roof. So all day long, there was sunlight that beamed in through this. It used to be an old newspaper factory. So it was like walking in and how do we black that out? How do we black out the roof of a warehouse? So um, it was basically what we ended up doing was we had to get a black plastic and fix it to the roof. So that was the first thing we had to do there was try and control it and hope that it didn't break down over the eight, 10 weeks that it was going to be up there, that the heat wasn't going to knock it off the ceiling. And then putting the lights in, where can we hide them? And how can we build them into the set? And it's dealing with our department. You know, we need to get lights in this position because so much of the action is going to happen here. So how can we hide that? And you're working with them going, there's a big girder over there. Do we build a similar girder and we just hide the lamps within that and they're coming out of it? So you're constantly trying to work with it. And our department and Sparks have become really close in the relationship now because so many of the LEDs and everything else is built into the set. So the design of the sets is built around a lot of lighting now. Um, to try and reduce the amount that you have to bring on the floor, especially when you're dealing with a spaceship. 
And you were saying about putting battery packs into costumes there. So like, and, and I remember the first time doing it was on Harry Potter was for the wand. And I remember seeing the practical spark in the UK, Michael White, and I'd never seen LEDs yet. They were using them in the end of the wand and did a battery pack put out of it. And it was wireless control, you know, that we could dim it up and down and thinking this is unbelievable. And now every practical that's going around we, we, our department will buy practicals and set deck and buy practicals and we have to retrofit that with our own LEDs and then it's all wireless you know the batteries are small enough the controllers are small enough they sit in the pocket and you've range of hundreds of meters that the desk as they're walking down the road you can bring a lamp up you can bring a lamp down you can change the color of it as they're walking so as they're walking away from you you could have it as a cool light a lot brighter lighting up the thing but as you wrap around you want it a little bit warmer on the skin so you can change the color temperature and change your level and in the middle of the scene you can do it without it being perceptible because you can just gently take it down over a couple of seconds and you know it might be too bright and then all of a sudden you go you can, you can let the continuity person know the second half of that scene is better than the first half for us because the light level is where we're at so if we go again we just know where we're going to have it wow it's almost like a performance in a way that you would just be watching the action and moving the dials to get the lights to do what they're meant to do i guess because it's so easy now to control lights wirelessly you don't have to run cables all over the place that in the middle of scenes they're building in queues and you're sitting at a monitor watching the action q1 q2 hold it for a couple of seconds now and it's almost like you're doing a concert and you've got a row of guys that are all operating lamps and you're trying to follow action on the stage and you've got follow spots and dim that one up and that one down. So you're reacting an awful lot of the time now to what's happening in the scene. Wow, it would really require stamina, I think, trying to do that over the course of an entire shoot. And, and I think now, because we now do these 10-hour continuous days where you're, you're having to eat on set, you're not getting away from the monitors. All of a sudden, you're doing a 10-hour shoot day you have an hour's early call to try and get stuff up and ready to go. And if you go over by an hour, all of a sudden you've done 12 hours sitting at a monitor with other people that are sitting at a desk all day trying to eat on the go. Um, and it becomes a labour. An awful lot, you see a lot of people fading after four or five weeks of it. And suddenly they get a two-day weekend or they get a long bank holiday weekend and they come back on the Tuesday morning refreshed and ready to go again. I guess the love of the work keeps people going as well. Yeah, it's the enjoyment. And if there's enough change and enough difference in a day-to-day thing, I think whenever you get into the monotony of doing the same thing, I, I, I remember on um, Badlands, we would do fight sequences and the fight sequence might take four days. So you'd light it on the first day and then you could be sitting doing nothing for three days, bar bringing a lamp in every two or three hours for a small part you do. And the monotony of it, you find fellas are outside and they're losing interest and they're getting bored and everything else. So having something that's constantly changing, it keeps people motivated, keeps people going, stops them getting relaxed too much in the corner, and having conversations and chatting away. And all of a sudden they're banished. Where are they gone? God knows. They're going to the shops. There's nothing happening. So yeah, the constant change of, of a show keeps everyone, I think, going and interested. In. And it's lovely when when there's a scene that happens and, you know, it could be a massive stunt or um, big lighting setup or a long dialogue and you see an actor that is giving this long monologue speech to a crowd and you get to the end of it and you go, amazed, brilliant. And everybody loves it. I remember on Stan and Ollie sitting in an auditorium and myself and the Sparks crew, we were filming the stage and it was um, John C. Riley and Steve Coogan were doing the Way Out West dance. And we sat and we watched it. And at the end of it, the crew were sitting and the crew all started applauding. 
and it, it took a moment for people to, it was like sitting in an auditorium in the 50s watching Laurel and Hardy do this stuff. And it was brilliant. It was a lot of, you know, moments like that where you go, where else are you going to see? Like, there's nobody around now that would remember seeing Stan and Ollie possibly, but we're sitting here literally watching a reenactment of it with two actors that are brilliant at doing it. Um, and it's great. We've done the Jimi Hendrix movie. Benjamin Andre 3000 played Jimi Hendrix. Um, and he's right-handed, but he learned, the, the skill he learned was to play the left-handed guitar upside down the same way Jimi Hendrix did it. So Jimi Hendrix always played, he played, he got Keith Richards' guitar, which was a right-handed guitar. He flipped it left-handed, played it left-handed. So it, it was all backwards, but Andre 3000 had learned how to do this. Um, and we stood on set and we couldn't use any of Jimi Hendrix's movie. There was issues with um, licenses and that, but he would stand on stage and he would play a Jimi Hendrix song while we were in the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin, setting up, and he'd just be sitting playing the guitar looking like Jimi Hendrix, talking like Jimi Hendrix. Um, and, and it was amazing. We were just going, this is unbelievable. Magical. Yeah. And they're great. They're great memories to have. Um, and you try and take stuff away from all these jobs that you, you remember going forward and you remember for years to come. And, and every job you go on to, someone goes, do you remember that time we were sitting in the Gaudi Theatre? Or, or you, you've done a night shoot in the middle of Dublin and everyone got lashed on and the set had to be shut down because there's too much water. Like you build up so many memories of being in the trenches with people nearly um, that you end up having these conversations 20 years later. It's been brilliant so far and hopefully it goes on for many years and hopefully everyone in the industry in Ireland now keeps going and it keeps growing the way it has been. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next, Barry. It's been so wonderful hearing about your fascinating career. And you never know, one of your little ones might follow in your footsteps. Uh, one of them wants to be a paramedic and the other one, I think she'd be a TikTok dancer at some point if, if she has her way. That's all I get now is videos of her dancing around the kitchen. That sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Stop. Thanks a million for having me. It's been a joy talking to you. And that's a wrap on the Crew Call podcast for this series. The Galway Film Centre would like to thank Mary Pike, Steve Lynch, Linda Gannon Foster, Pader Cox, Emer O'Grady and Barry Conrad for their time. The Crew Call podcast is produced by the Galway Film Centre and supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, RAP, the Western Region Audiovisual Producers Fund, edited by Marty Thornton, with graphic design by Laura Hartnett, and me, Linda Rana, as your host. Slonga fold. <laughs> <laughs>